All right, so I'm gonna have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Jeremiah. I know I've, I've taken a little hiatus or a break from that book for two weeks. Uh, after I finished preaching in the first service this morning, I realized, wow, good thing, this is intense. Book of Jeremiah is an intense book. There's a lot happening there. Now, if I would have been really with the program today, I'd have probably had a little movie clip right about now. But I want to picture it in your mind. You'll follow along really easy. Can you imagine a car is pulling up in front of the house and two military people are getting outside the car and they're walking up to the house? And we we have a sense right now, this is not going to be a good thing. And they announce to the family in this house that either their son or daughter or their husband or wife has now been killed in action. You can just imagine the great devastation and the pain that this person is going to experience. But now I want to go a little further in the story. Can you imagine if you are the person going to the door to tell the people that their child has now suffered an accident and you know the people? Can you imagine the brokenness and the anguish which you currently are experiencing to bear this bad news to people you love, and the greatest enemy of humanity, which is death itself, is what you're gonna explain to them what has occurred, how painful that moment would really be. That's the picture we need to understand as we now arrive at this 15th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. We've looked at 14 chapters. We're just moving along. Every time we come to a new chapter, it just seems like God just keeps unfolding ideas before us here of the challenges that lie before us. God has now told Jeremiah, as we're about to see, to stop praying. Now, you know, when I, when I read the Bible, there's very few points in the scripture, but there are a moment. I think there's a moment when Joshua's praying, God says, don't pray anymore. You gotta deal with this thing. And in this pa- passage, God is gonna tell Jeremiah, stop praying. I'm not gonna answer that prayer. And he said, even if Moses and Samuel were praying, I wouldn't answer this prayer. It's a very profound moment in scripture, very rarely done. The apostle Paul is basically gonna capture this idea for us in the book of Romans, because what is happening in the story is that the people, the nation, the people whom Jeremiah has been speaking towards, the people who Jeremiah has been weeping over, the anguish that he has felt because his countrymen have actually moved away from God and are not doing what God's asked them to do, and it's not just been for a little while. This has been generation after generation. We're gonna see a long period of time where God over a period of time has sent many people to them, but they have turned their backs on God and they have sunk to an all-time low. God says, okay, I'm gonna deal with them now. So I'm not gonna spare them. I'm gonna allow the consequences of their lives to fully impact them. Paul says it this way in the book of Romans, and I'm pretty sure that he probably picked up these ideas from the Old Testament. He says here, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. I've entitled this message, When the Perverse is Considered Sacred. What happens to a culture, a society, when that which God deems as being morally repugnant to them and disgusting and wicked is celebrated and that which is righteous and good and godly is despised. Are we not living in a parallel time? 
That's why I feel the Bible is such a relevant book. There's probably nothing so tragic in a person's life or in the life of a family or in the life of a nation when we cross over to that state of mind that nothing will curb our sinful passion and God just gives us over to it. He just allows us to continue to go into that state where we are destroying ourselves. How sad that really is. One of the roles of the Old Testament priest was to teach the people a distinction between what was holy and what was profane, what was considered clean or unclean. The book, a contemporary of Jeremiah, already in captivity, Ezekiel says this, the priest, they, are to teach my people the difference between the holy, which means that which is separated for God's use, and the common, and to show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. So God wants his people to be able to discern what is good and what is not good, what is healthy and what is unhealthy. If we don't know how to do that, we're going to be doing the wrong thing, and we're the ones that suffer as a result of that. So now, who are the priests in the New Testament? Who are the priests? Well, we discover we are God's people, God's the people who have come to Christ, the people who are following Jesus, we're the priests. And we have that responsibility to reveal that distinction by our lives, both in our actions and in our words, that we are modeling for people what is considered good, healthy, holy, and that which is considered morally repugnant to God, that which is gonna create unhealth and destructiveness, not only in that person's life, but in every life that they touch. And we'll see that that happens as we keep reading through the passages here. So we can only do that if we become biblically literate. We cannot remain uh, in ignorance. We will no longer then be able to make distinctions for ourselves, and, and then we find ourselves in a compromised situation. Here in Jeremiah's hour, we see the impact of what I call unrestrained sin. It's just running rampant. And we see what happens to the people who are doing it and the people who are concerned about it. Two groups of people, we're gonna look at that today. And I think there's probably no greater agony agony than to see those you love destroying themselves by their lifestyle. That has gotta be the most difficult thing. Here you are, you're a parent, you're watching your child and they're making terrible decisions and you're you're in absolute agony because you can see what they're doing is bringing a slow death into their lives. It's destroying everything good about what's going on in their lives. And, you know, we can do that with friends and people around us. You know, every time I see it, my heart just breaks because, you know, I see where this is headed and it's not headed in a good spot. I can see that this is gonna produce ruin in their personal lives. It's gonna create havoc in their families. It's gonna create pain in people around us. And so that's a very powerful thing. So in our text today, we're gonna learn the impact of unrestrained sin to two groups of people. Now, I wanna look at the first one. I only have two points. Two things we learn about the impact of unrestrained sin. Number one is its impact on those who are not followers of God. The Bible says uh, ungodly means to be unlike God. You're not like God. You're not like him. We discover that God will not relent in allowing the outcome of sin when people are insincere and unrepentant. In other words, God's just not gonna brush it by. He's not gonna just ignore it. God doesn't do that. You know, when God holds back from judging on sin, it's because God is loving, patient, merciful, 
waiting for us to come to our senses so that we can realize our life isn't working. We need to go in a new direction. That's the patience of Almighty God. But when we know better, we understand what we're doing is wrong. We're doing it in a sense, in def- in a, we're defying God, if I can use that expression. We're turning our backs on him. We're walking away from him. We're making a conscious choice. That's a whole different state of mind. And when God calls us back and we, we mouth words to him, but there's an insincerity, an unrepentant heart, a, a lack of change of mind and direction in our life, God goes, I won't tolerate that. I'm gonna eventually address it. I'll give you over to what you're doing and you're gonna mess up your life big time. So the first thing I notice is that uh, godly intercession uh, alone uh, will not spare the land. Look at verse one of Jeremiah 15. He's, then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know the story of Moses. He's praying for the nation. God's about to judge him because they had you know, created a calf and worshiped him even though God had delivered them from Egypt. Moses prays and God delivers them. Remember that story? Then Samuel, later on in the history, Samuel's praying for the nation and God delivers them from their captors. Very powerful stories, but God says, listen, Jeremiah, even though, you know, it's not about you, Jeremiah. It's not because you're not good enough. It's not because you're not like these major historical figures in the past. As a matter of fact, if Moses and Samuel were both here praying right now, I wouldn't listen to them. That's how bad the situation has happened. And so from that, I just glean this idea that God's answers to prayer are not determined by who we are, but by who he is. And what he determines to be the proper thing to do in light of the heart condition of people. So a lot of times we're praying and we're going, why doesn't God do something? Well, you know, it's not determined on me, it's determined on him and what's going on in people's lives. You know, sometimes people are resisting God. You and I are praying the right prayer. God is saying, I wanna do that, but the person is resisting. And God says, you know what? I don't go against their will. He won't do that. So we know that. Here we see these amazing examples. I think one of the hardest things that a godly person faces is the moment when they must relinquish people in order for God to discipline them. How many know that's kind of a tough thing to do? You go, listen, I've talked to people. I've warned people. I've cared for them. I've cried over them. But in the end, I've got to let them go. I just got to give them to God. I gotta let God do what he's gonna do with them. They're not gonna learn this lesson apart from God dealing with them. And how many know that suffering is a great tool to teach you obedience? Sometimes we have to experience consequences in our lives before we awaken and go, you know, this is not the right path to take. You know, it's devastating and it's crippling and it's crushing and it's demoralizing and it's dehumanizing. And we finally realize I'm waking up to a reality that I gotta go a different way. How powerful is that? Then we see the result of sin. This is Jeremiah's words. In verse two, he says, and if they ask you, God's talking to Jeremiah, and if they ask you, where shall we go? Tell them, this is what the Lord says. Those destined for death to death. Those destined for the sword to the sword. Those to starvation to starvation. And those to captivity to captivity. Now, when we read this, it's really an intense indictment, isn't it? But we need to understand what Jeremiah is doing is quoting from the, from the, the, the Mosaic law. And basically, Israel had made a covenant with God, and God said, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you, and if you disobey me, this is what's going to happen to you. And they said, no, no, we want to have a relationship with you. We want to obey you. We want all the blessings. 
But God says, if you turn your back on me and worship all these other gods, he said, this is what will happen to you. And so Jeremiah is basically reminding the people, this was the agreement, and you guys have been violating it for hundreds of years. This is now what's going to happen to you. I will send four kinds of destroyers against you, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to drag away, the birds and the wild animals to devour and destroy. This is not a beautiful picture, folks. I can almost see it. You know, military army comes against the land, dead bodies everywhere, animals feasting. You know, the, 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 what do you call those? The predators are feasting on bodies. This is not a pretty picture. This is a picture of carnage. We have never experienced that in North America, not to the degree that these, some of these ancient peoples experience. And then uh, it says, and I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Now, we need to learn a little bit about Manasseh. So Jeremiah is not a contemporary. He's not living in the same time period. Manasseh reigned for 55 years. And then he had... His father was a godly king. Hezekiah was a godly king. Manasseh was a very ungodly king. And it was during the time when Assyria rose as an empire, Hezekiah withstood it, Manasseh succumbed to it. And he began to embrace the religions of the nations that were around the nation. And we'll see what happens as a result. Let me just read a little bit from the book of 2 Kings chapter 21. I didn't put all the slides up, but let me just pick some things out. It says here, he did evil, verse 2, in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So what Hezekiah, uh, sorry, Manasseh did was the very things that God was concerned about, the moral pollution in the land when Israel went into the promised land, Manasseh did things even more wicked than that and led the people into that. Now, let me ask you guys a question. If there's a lake nearby, and we start throwing chemicals and pollutants into the lake, there'll come a time when the lake will not be able to sustain life. We'll say the lake is totally polluted, right? How many know that can happen? And all the life in that lake can die. Now, let me point out something. You know, and I think we should be aware of these things. We can, we can actually destroy life by allowing pollutants to fill our air and everywhere. And I think we're, we're concerned about that. We're probably more ecologically concerned today as a culture than we've ever been about the dangers of pollution. How many say that's true? We're more aware of that. And we recognize that as an issue. But can I throw something that we're not aware of? And that's moral pollution. That we can, you know, violate God's what I would consider the way he designed humanity and created certain laws. And these laws are fundamental to every civilization. You know, when people violate these laws that God put down, you know, like do not kill, you know, do not steal, do not lie, don't commit adultery. You know, these are, these are fundamental things in every society. When cultures move away and violate these fundamental things and they don't, you know, they turn their back on God, what happens is you develop pollution. It's called moral pollution. And you know, after a while, you can have so much moral pollution that spiritual life cannot be sustained. 
You cannot have a healthy relationship with God and therefore you're struggling to have healthy relationships with one another. And we're seeing it today in our culture. People are struggling to have healthy relationships with each other. People are struggling even to communicate, how to resolve issues, how to work through conflict, all of these powerful things. We're struggling with this stuff because of the level of moral pollution that's filling our land and people are ignorant of who God is and ignorant of his ways. And that's a detrimental thing. Actually, he goes on to say here in verse uh, five, it says, in the two courts of the temple of the Lord, in God's very house, he built altars to the starry host. In other words, he, he, beca- he began to read the, the, the stars and the zodiac and the horoscopes and all of these things. You know, it's, it was shocking when I went to Israel was how much idolatry and all of the idols they found in Israel. Because Israel's, the nation as a whole became great idolaters. And there's a lot of support for that, even in archaeology today. They're digging it up all the time. And even we've been at uh, synagogues and stuff, and you can see the charts and the astrology stuff right in the flooring. They put that stuff right in there. These people were turning their backs on God. Verse 6, he sacrificed his own son in the fire as an offering to a God. He practiced divination. That means you know, he was looking for the knowledge of the future, and he went to the dark side to get it. He sought omens. He consulted mediums and spiritists. And so he, he was a spiritual person, but he turned to the wrong source to get his wisdom. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing God's anger. It took a long time, 55 years of this. You and I, we get upset when somebody, you know, cuts in front of us for two seconds and we're all up in arms, you know. Hey, what do they think they're doing, right? I mean, 50, how many say you could probably handle 55 years of pure garbage coming at you? That just tells you the long-suffering patience of Almighty God. He is patient, let me tell you. Um, But eventually, they moved to this place of no return. Uh, And I think there have been moments throughout human history when civilizations have become so morally polluted, they've not survived. And I think I said this a few weeks back. How many know some Amorites? Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites? Don't know any of those guys? They're not around anymore. They don't exist. These are civilizations that have been buried in the sands and the sea of time because they so were so morally polluted. We don't even know about them. Actually, for a long time, they didn't even think the Hittites existed, and eventually they found them. You know, they dug this stuff up. Archaeology realized that was a great civilization at one day, but they totally destroyed themselves through moral pollution. Every great civilization comes down because of moral pollution. We need to understand that. And you know what's tragic about Canada? You know, in 1950, Canada was the most church country on the nation. It was the most Christian country. How many knew that? 1950, the most Christian country in the entire world was Canada. That cannot be said today, my friends. We have turned our backs on God. That, you know, the great challenge, you know, it's one thing when you don't know anything. It's another thing to turn your back on God and to walk away from it. As, as a nation, we have turned our back on God. We are moving away from God, and there's no question about that. But what is the result then uh, of these things? Well, the Lord said to his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him. That's the people who were in the land when Israel took it over, and has led Judah into sin with his idols. This, the very reason God commanded As I said, the Israelites to destroy the people in the land was because they had so perverted their culture. There was nothing salvageable. That's so tragic. Uh, Now they themselves were beyond that point. They were doing, as the Bible says, more evil than the Amorites. 
Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I'm gonna bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. People will look back and go, I can't believe what God did to them. And, and if you go to Jerusalem today, they've had, Israel's had two temples and they're both gone. So that tells you something, that God doesn't mess when he says, I'm gonna do something about this. Eventually he does do something about it. Verse 13, I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. Now he's talking about the northern 10 tribes. Under the Assyrians, they were totally taken away. Now we come 150 years later under the Babylonians, Judah is gonna go through the same experience. And he says, I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. How many get the idea? God says, I'm just gonna clean the dish slate and flip it over. How many sense that's a pretty drastic expression? I'm, I'm just gonna take care of this problem. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hand of enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all of their enemies. These are strong, strong words. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. What's God saying? He said, you guys have always been unfaithful. That's your whole history. Read the Bible. Read the Old Testament. Israel, you know, you know they, they would sin against God. They would cry out, please help me. God would send deliverers and he would rescue them. Then they would go back into sin again. How many know they did this over and over and over and over and over again? After a while, God says, you guys are not even sorry for your sins. You have no interest in changing your ways. This is the problem. Robert Davidson says, King Manasseh kept Judah at peace for most of the first half of the 7th century B.C., by faithfully licking the boots of his Assyrian imperial overlord. He bought security and peace at a price, the price of encouraging the worship of many gods, including the Assyrian gods in Jerusalem. John Thompson says, Manasseh was the most syncretistic of all the Davidic kings and had a profound influence on the nation. The word syncretistic means he embraced everything. Can I just say something about our culture today? We embrace everything. And we, 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 we revel in that. We think that's a good thing. Well, not according to God. There are some things we shouldn't be embracing. Some of it's pollutant. Some of it is destructive. Some of it's destroying us, and we don't understand that. We just don't know. We're not thinking. You know, I would venture to say that the, you know, of the 38 million Canadians, the vast majority of them have no clue what God thinks. I'm going to say that's true. They have no idea. I would even say, shockingly, a lot of people who say they're Christians have very little knowledge of what God thinks. That's tragic too. That's probably even more tragic because we ought to know better. And the real tragedy is, are we saying anything? Do we, do we actually share the gospel, the good news about Jesus with our neighbors? Not too much. You know, see, we're, you know, we're part of the problem, guys. See, sometimes we go, well, they're the problems, Pastor. I'm going, no, no, we gotta come back to us and go, what are we doing? You know, take a hard look at ourselves and say, what am I doing about this? Um, in other words, he had adapted the culture to embrace all of the values of all the cultures around him. You know, Davidson says, and he makes this application very simple in our lives. He says, it's always possible to buy peace at a price, often at the price of compromising on the very issues on which we know we ought to take a stand. We lack moral courage. That's what he's saying. You know, but one of the challenges is to know what's worth contending for. You know, a lot of times we fight the wrong battles. How many know that's true? We're really, we're like Don Coyote, you know, the guy fighting with the windmill, you know. 
We're, we're, not, we're not dealing with the reality, you know. We're, we're fighting the wrong issues. Folks, we need to understand what we need to be involved in. And then we see what happens when we sin. There's a lack of sympathetic support. We not only alienate God when we're sinning, but we have a tendency to alienate the people around us. Isn't that true? We end up finding ourselves separated from God and separated from people. We find ourselves, you know, at a loss. You know, people, after a while, get tired of us with all of our brokenness. You know, they just finally say, hey, I've had enough. You know, man, how much I try to help you, you just go back to the same thing. You're just, you're, you're perpetually struggling in this area. So let's see what Jeremiah says. Who will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will mourn for you? Who will stop to ask how you are? Interesting question. He's talking about a city, but he's talking about a culture. This is what's going to happen. People are not going to care about you. He goes on to say, you have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding. In other words, you're turning your back on me. So I'll reach out and destroy you. I'm tired of holding back. See, what God had been doing all of those hundreds of years was holding back his anger against what they were doing. Why was God doing that? Why doesn't God just judge our world like he did earlier under Noah and the flood? God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God's mercy is keeping back his judgment. But there's a day coming when humanity will be judged. It is coming. We read it in the book of Revelation. It will happen. Then he goes on to say, I will winnow them with a winnowing fork. You go, what does this mean? Well, when you were doing harvesting back in those days, small little plots of ground, you'd take the grain, you'd put it down, then you'd get a winnowing fork. You'd take the grain with the shaft and you'd throw it into the air and the chaff would blow away by the wind and then the grain would drop back on the harvest pad and you'd pick up the grain kernels. What's God saying here? He says, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna allow you to be taken into exile. I'm gonna allow you like the wind to take you away from the promised land. I'm gonna remove you from my presence. Wow, that's scary stuff. I will bring bereavement and destruction on my people for they have not changed their ways. Uh, Why was God allowing this destruction to happen? Because they had rejected God and had not changed their ways, which is the nature of true biblical repentance. The destruction that sin brings or the destitution that sin brings. Verse eight, I will make their widows more numerous than the sand of the sea. How many of just, if you're listening to the wording here, you know, there's another quote that God said to Abraham. I'm gonna make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the sea. Remember that? Jeremiah's picking up on that. He says, I'm gonna make your widows more numerous than the sands on the sea. What's he saying? I'm gonna end you guys. I'm taking you out. That's what he's saying. At midday, I will bring a destroyer against the mothers of their young men. Suddenly, I will bring down on them anguish and terror. Doesn't sound good. The mother of seven will grow faint and breathe her last. Now, her son will set while it is still day. She will be disgraced and humiliated. I will put the survivors to the sword before their enemies, declare the Lord. What we need to understand in the Bible is the word, the number seven represents something. It means complete. It means it's as good as it's gonna get, right? It's perfect. It's accomplished its means come to the end of its goal. The mother of seven would be considered in Israel the most blessed of mothers. But isn't it interesting, the most blessed person here is now gonna be the most cursed person because all of a sudden, all of her sons are dead in battle. She's lost everything. Can you imagine the grief in one day finding out that somebody's driving up to your house and your seven children are all dead? 
That's overwhelming. That's what he's talking about here. And you know something? That's what sin does. It destroys the good in our lives. That's a heavy picture, isn't it? Let me move on. The second thing is what we learn about what unrestrained sin does on the godly. That's what happens to the ungodly. What happens to the godly? Well, let's take a look at how it was impacting Jeremiah. He's a godly person. He's concerned about his nation. He's weeping over his nation. He's having a dialogue with God now. And we pick it up here. He's pouring out his complaint. How many know that when you're trying to help people who refuse to be helped, it's very frustrating and it's painful. And you care deeply for them, but they're not responding. You know, you can't help a person who doesn't want to help themselves. I always say to people, I'm, I'm here to help anybody who wants help. But when you stop trying, I stop trying because I can't do it for you. That makes sense. They've got to be willing. God is looking for willing hearts. And here we see in verse 10, Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth, a man with whom the whole land strives and contends. I've neither lent nor bored, yet everyone curses me. So Jeremiah's going, look, God, you gave me an assignment, but you know what? This is not a popularity rating. Everybody hates me. I'm just telling them what you're telling me to tell them, and they're all mad at me. You ever had that experience as a Christian? You're telling somebody something, they don't want to hear it, and they get mad at you. I've been there. I've gotten in all kinds of trouble. Okay, so some of you know what you're, ta- you're, you're talking about. Robert Davidson says, he's a marked man continually at loggerheads with the rest of the community, all of which would have been fair enough if he had been like a detestable moneylender exacting exorbitant interest from his fellow citizens or if he had been defaulting on a loan. But he's on the receiving end of others' curses for no reason at all, simply telling people what God is saying. And people don't want to hear what God has to say. Can I just say something? There's a lot of people in Canada who do not want to hear what God has to say. Unfortunately. They'd rather continue on in their merry old way and just continually implode and destroy themselves and all the people around them. They have no clue. They're clueless. They think they're wise, but the Bible says they've become fools. And in the Bible, a fool is someone who doesn't fear God, someone who does not know the ways of God. That's a, that's a person the Bible describes as a fool. So I think we should not be surprised, living in a world that's against Christ, that you and I represent Christ. We're seen as a threat. And I think we need to understand this. So Jeremiah is now building a case. Hey, God, I've been loyal to you. I've embraced your calling, but it's led to pain, loneliness, and some disappointment. He's complaining to God about what's happening in his life. He's, you know, uh, he actually says, maybe it's better if I wasn't even born. Kind of like Job, remember? I'm going through all these difficulties. Lord, you understand. Remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. So Jeremiah is saying, look, God, you know, I'm doing what you've asked me to do, and I'm suffering as a result of it. By the way, if we do what God wants us to do, there may be a little suffering that goes with it. I think we need to arm our mind with that thought. He says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, but I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and you filled me with indignation. In other words, God, I never fit in. How many of you ever felt this way? You know, you're going and all of a sudden, something going on and these guys are becoming party animals and you're sitting here going, yeah, I'm about ready to leave now. It's getting a little later. You know, 
I have to be honest. When people are inebriated, they're not thinking straight. That's when the conversation goes sideways. So I usually check out before then. I get a feeling for what's happening. I just go, I'm out of here. I'm leaving early. There's nothing going on here of any interest whatsoever. How many relate to what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Okay, some of you get it. Well, Jeremiah got it. He says, I don't fit in. I'm not fitting into the party crowd, so I'm not going to go hang with them. That's what he's basically saying. Uh, why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? You're to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. Now, now he's getting a little, he's pretty upset with God, and he's basically feeling abandoned and lonely. Uh, and he's basically telling God, hey, you know, he's likening it, his experience to an expectation. How many know when it's really dry out, you want to go to the brook and get some water? But he said, you know, in, in Israel, they have these little places called wadis. That's, that's little streams. But in the summertime, it's really hot. They're dry. It's just an empty, dry bed. You know? And then every once in a while, it rains, and then those beds fill up. And then most Israelis capture the water because they think that's important to do because they only get so much. He said, God, I'm disappointed. I feel like what you are is a dry riverbed. You know, I'm thirsting, and there's nothing there to quench my thirst. He's really not happy with God at this point in the conversation. Okay? He feels like God in his most difficult and painful moment has kind of left him high and dry. That's how what he's telling him. Now, I want to just say something. He's kind of describing a sense of grief. He's grieving. He's grieving a loss of this intimacy with God. And I was thinking when I was reading this about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, he had a beautiful marriage later on in life with Joy Grisham, and she died of cancer. And he wrote a book called Grief Observed, and he's, he's describing grief, and I want you to just hear what he says. He says, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. What is he saying? When, he's, he's basically saying, I feel that God's not there for me. He says, when you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. In other words, you're just enjoying life, and you know, if God bugs you at that point, you're just saying, hey, I'm just enjoying things. Don't bother me right now, right? He's going... But if you remember yourself and you turn to him with gratitude and praise, well, you'll be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. It just feels like, oh, life is good. God is good. Oh, I feel him. It's all great. Then he goes on to say, but go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. What do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. Now, what he's basically describing is grief. He's basically describing a sense of emptiness. You, you know, when you, you feel, and I'm going to say, I'll be, there's moments that you're going to feel this way as a Christian. Where are you, God? It'll happen. Okay. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, after that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. And then he goes on and he's reminded by a friend. He said, yeah, but the same thing happened to Jesus. Remember, he was on the cross dying. He says, God, why have you forsaken me? So there are moments in our life when we experience grief. We can experience grief from the loss of a loved one, but I think there's times when we experience grief when life is difficult and we feel like we're, we're in a state of loss. And at those moments, we feel like, God, you've left me. You know, the emotion of, and the feeling for God is not there. We feel like we're in a dry place. Maybe you're there today. Jeremiah understood that. C.S. Lewis understood that. And then he says, I know, does it make it easier to understand? Well, not really. But then he says this, but I've been gradually coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. What is he saying? 
what you realize is that eventually as you walk with God with no feeling but just by faith, you get past that season and then you're all of a sudden you sense, well, God was there the whole time. That's that whole poem of footprints. Remember, when you thought God had deserted you, God was carrying you. You didn't know it. I mean, we've all had moments like that. If you're a Christian for a long period of time, you're going to have that moment. I've had those moments. You know, extended tracks of time where you feel like, oh, man, this is not an easy time. But God was there the whole time. I can look back now in hindsight. Hindsight's great. Oh, yeah, that was a terrible time. But you know what? I deepened. My soul deepened. Things changed inside of me. You know, all of us go, Lord, I want to become more like you. I want to grow up. I want to mature. God goes, okay, I'm taking you through the deepest valley you've ever been through before. You're going, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, God said, you did. You prayed. You wanted to become more like me. This is the valley I got to take you through to make you more like me. And when you come out of it, you're a different person. You're stronger. You're more compassionate. You're more understanding. You're not as, you know, you're more mature. You've deepened. You have a deeper understanding of what the scriptures are about. You relate to people in a totally new and different way, more powerful way. It's powerful. Here's God's response to Jeremiah's complaint. He's going to say something to him. He begins by reassuring Jeremiah. Aren't you glad God's a reassuring God? He's going to comfort us. So he tells him, listen, I have a purpose for this. Even the difficulty you're in right now, there's a purpose for it. And I never waste sorrow. I'm using it as a tool. You know, sometimes we suffer a little bit. I'm teaching you obedience. There's some good stuff coming out of it. So God begins by reassuring him. He's telling him all these beautiful things. And oh, by the way, Jeremiah, this is going to help other people. You know, God's doing things in our life. It's not just about us. It's about maturing us so that our life doesn't just become about us. That's a selfish person. That's an immature person. God's going to grow you up and then you're going to have things to share with other people. God, as I said, God never wastes sorrows. He turns ashes into beauty. Here's how he says it. Surely I will deliver you for a good purpose. Surely I will make your enemies plead with you in times of disaster and times of distress. So as we continue the narrative and the story of Jeremiah, you know what happens? Exactly what Jeremiah tells him, God has been telling him, this is going to happen. It happens. And now everybody's saying, Jeremiah, now what's going to happen? Boy, everything you said has happened. What's God up to now? What do we do now? Isn't that great? They're all listening to him. Jeremiah tells them, they don't listen to him. They do the very opposite. Isn't that amazing? Don't you love it when people come to you and go, what should I do now? And you go, well, this is what God would have you to do. And then they go do the opposite. Oh, yeah. Jeremiah had that same problem. He was living in an interesting time, much like our time. He says, but then Jeremiah says, you know, I mean, sorry, God says to Jeremiah, there's a little self-pity here, Jeremiah. You've got to eradicate that out of your life. Because one of the things that happens when we go through a difficult time is we can start feeling sorry for ourselves. Nobody in this room has ever had that experience, I'm sure. You know? And, you know, if we're not careful, we can get a little edgy and a little bitter. And bitterness is a terrible thing. I've seen it at work. It's not nice. It says, therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you... If you repent, what, what do you mean? I'm preaching repentance, God. Yeah, but you need to repent too, Jeremiah. You need to change your mind. You need to get on my page. I will restore you that you may serve me if you utter worthy, not worthless words. You will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. It's an interesting expression. And I like how John Thomas, he brings it out. We must, well, I wrote this first. 
said, we must speak the truth in love as the apostle told us to do. We do not craft the message so that people are hearing what they want to hear, but rather what God wants to say. Can I just say this? If you and I are going to speak for God, we can only say what God says. But you know, we're all tempted in this room to say what people want to hear. And why do we do that? Because we want to be liked. We want to fit in. We want people to like us. We want, right? But if you tell people exactly what God says, they may not like what you're saying. And they'll, they don't just turn against God. They turn against the messenger, right? Come on now. We say, don't shoot the messenger. But you know, messengers do get shot. Okay. Perhaps God was telling the prophet that he had been overly concerned about what people thought and had said about him when his one concern should have been to heed what God said and proclaim that. I think it's more important to say what God says rather than, you know, trying to make it so that it sounds good so that people can take it. Because you're not helping, you know, when you're not telling people the truth and you're letting them continue in their sin, you're just, you, you know, you may think you're being loving. That's the most unloving thing to be, you could possibly do because eventually it's going to destroy them. How much love is there in that? Now, you may say something to somebody and they go, I didn't like what you said. But the wise listen to correction. People who are, the Bible classifies as fools, won't listen to correction. You know, scoffers and mockers don't listen to correction. Now, the gullible notice that maybe we can reach, the Bible calls them simple. The simple it's the uninitiated. They don't, they'll say, hey, maybe there's some truth here. They're still worth reaching. But sometimes people get so hard, it's hard to reach them. They get to a point of no return. So then God goes on to say here, I'm going to make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They're going to fight against you, but not overcome you. For I will be with you and rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. And I'm going to close with this because I'll just summarize. I won't show all the scriptures. I'll just summarize it this way. Jeremiah eventually was arrested, thrown into a cistern. It was full of mud, but God pulled him out of the mud. He had him rescued. He was pulled out. So what can I learn? What can we take away from this narrative today? Well, we learn that what happens to a culture that advocates perversity, it's going to be destroyed. It's inevitable. If we don't learn from history, we're just going to repeat it. If we don't learn from other people's mistakes, we're going to make the same mistakes and we're going to suffer for it. We need to learn the lesson and say, you know what? I got to do what God's asking me to do, no matter what the price. What happens when a society says evil is good and good is evil? That's where we are. Isn't it interesting right now? You know, one of the, if I said to young people today, oh, that's wicked, what does that mean? It's cool, it's good. Well, when I read the Bible and it says that's wicked, that means it's bad. So all of a sudden, we're saying what's good is bad, what's bad is good. We're getting confused as a culture. We don't know up from down anymore, you know? The people are in jeopardy of self-destruction. What can we do as a as believer in a time such as this? Number one, here, you better write this down. What should I do? One, live a godly life. Live a holy life. Live like God wants us to live. Two, speak the truth with tears in our eyes in a loving way, not condemning. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save it. We should be brokenhearted over the, the destructive patterns we're seeing in our society. 
Number three, we need to pray. Unless God tells you to stop praying, which he only did a few times in the Bible, we should be praying and trusting that God's grace will awaken hearts, those who are bent on evil. And I think we have to be realistic and realize that not everyone will respond. Many will oppose God, and those who oppose God, they're going to oppose you. And now you understand Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, not because we're stupid. Sorry, said that word again. Not, not, not because we're being uh, unwise. That's a better word. Not being unwise. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. You're going, what? Most of us go, I don't rejoice. I'm not glad when people are upset with me because I've stood for God. But he said, for in the same way they persecuted the Jeremiah's that were before you, the prophets. Can you see that if you stand for God, you're going to be persecuted? It'll happen. As a matter of fact, I would argue, and Paul says it, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall, shall, shall suffer persecution. I just reemphasize the shall because, you know, I'm not saying that it's continuous. I'm just saying there's moments of it. And if you've never been persecuted as a follower of Christ, you've got to ask yourself a question. Am I living a godly life? Because if you start living a godly life, people are going to be not all happy with that. You say, why is that? Because you're showing them that there's another way to live. You're showing them that the way of evil is not the way that's healthy or good. You're modeling for them. There is another way. And Jesus talks about it. It's a narrow way, but we can all come to it. Jesus is the way. So let's stand as we close. And I, th- I believe today, you know, I know this is, I know Jeremiah is such a challenging book. Aren't you glad I gave you two weeks break? But here we are, being challenged. How many recognize that we're in a broken culture today? Anybody go, doesn't this sound like we're living in Jeremiah's day? Does it not sound like that? Isn't it important to hear what God has to say to a culture that thinks evil is good and good is evil? Don't you think we need to hear this? I think we do. I think we need to awaken. We need to take this time seriously. We need to say, God, help us. We cannot just cruise along life and say, hey, I'm enjoying life. Whoa, my life is good. Yeah, but there's so many people around me. Their lives are broken. I mean, if I'm a real Christian, wouldn't I care about my neighbor? Wouldn't I want him to know the good news that Jesus died for them to take away their sin and to put his spirit to live inside of them so that they could be free from the sin that is destroying them? Isn't that a beautiful thought, to be free from what's destroying you? How many say, I'm signing up to be free from what's destroying me? Yeah, I'm signing up for that. Right on. You bet. Jesus said, and the truth shall make you free. Yes. I love that. We have an amazing message, guys. We just need to learn how to live it and how to share it. How many say, I need moral courage? I need moral courage this morning. I'm going to pray for us right now. Lord, I just thank you for these beautiful people. They love you. They want you. They want to do what's right in your sight. I know that we're in agony. I know we see brokenness. It bothers us, Lord, to see people destroying themselves. 
Lord, we know that you're a savior. We know that you want to rescue every last person on the planet. Father, help us to be a part of your great game plan. Help us to be a part of your purpose in this generation. Help us, oh God, to live this holy, godly life and be able to speak the truth with such compassion and love and concern for our, the people around us. That we will not be indifferent, but that we'll be compassionate and concerned. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.